Loving Father, we ask you to help us to see what is true about you and to respond properly, uh, move our hearts towards putting you at the centre. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I recently inherited a bunch of maps from my auntie because she was a subscriber to the National Geographic. Hard to know what to do with that sort of inheritance, but uh, I ended up studying them while I ate my breakfast cereal for a little while. And one in particular was a topographical map of the ocean floors of the world. Uh, So vast underwater plains, vast mountain ranges, some of which stick up above and uh, people live on them, and very deep trenches in the ocean floor. And the deepest point of the world's oceans is a trench north of Papua New Guinea, east of the Philippines, called the Mariana Trench. Now, if you're swimming in the ocean and you dive down 10 metres, then you'll feel it in your ears, the pressure. If you were to dive down 200 metres, you would find that it's getting pretty dark. In fact, it's too dark for plants to grow at 200 metres. If you were to dive down 1,000 metres, that is a kilometre, you would find there is no light at all. It's pitch black one kilometre down in the ocean. To get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, you'd have to go to that level of darkness one kilometre and then keep going another 10 kilometres straight down through the blackness and the intense pressure before you would hit the bottom of the Mariana Trench. It's very deep. Only a few people have ever been down there and they couldn't see all that much out of their super-reinforced submarines. The place is a place of deep mystery and darkness. Well, the book, uh, the, the book of Job, uh, which we are going to be looking at this term, is, I would say, the Mariana Trench of the Bible. It is deep, uh, it is intense, it explores the mysteries of human existence and coping with God's ways when they are beyond our understanding. Now, Job is part of what we call the wisdom literature of the Bible, which uh, basically makes observations on how everything works and how humans can best navigate life in, in, uh, in God's world. The book of Proverbs is the classic wisdom book which makes all these observations about the world and about life. It's fairly optimistic about our chances of navigating a good life if we learn wisdom. But then you have the book of Job which points out that it's not always that simple. You can't always just make a formula, apply it to your life and it'll end up well. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes our formulas fail. Sometimes our experience defies every explanation of how the world works that we have and so we think how this was not supposed to happen. This doesn't fit my understanding of how the world is supposed to work and I'm a Bible-believing Christian so surely if anyone has it right, I've got it right. And we're left confused and scared and angry and perhaps in pain. What is God doing? Why would God let me go through this? What did I do to deserve this more than other people? Uh, We want to make sense of things. We want explanations for our experience, but none are given. And you need a very big God to cope with that kind of painful mystery in your life. Well, the book of Job explores that experience. It takes us into... uh, the deeply painful experience of being out of our depths and in the dark. It's the Mariana Trench of the Bible. So we're starting today with the first two chapters which set up the situation that gives, gives rise to all of Job's struggles and in setting up the context, I think these first two chapters give us some huge and profound things about God and about how he operates and about our place in the world. 
So we're going to actually spend two weeks on chapters 1 and 2 of Job. Part 1 this week, what kind of God is the Lord? And part 2, which will be next week, how should we respond to him? So today we're considering the nature of God and his ways, which we might often take for granted. I mean, what kind of God is the Lord? You can probably rattle off a few propositions about what kind of God the God of the Bible is and you'd probably be pretty accurate. But the thing is that when we suffer, all of those things about God are often called into question. Is God powerful? Uh, Is God good? Is God there at all? Uh, Does God have enemies? Does he struggle to keep everything under control? Does he care about us? And if so, is it just a passing care or is it a deep care? Uh, Is there a goal to to which all of this is heading? Um, Pain tends to draw these questions about God out of us. Somebody in a painful situation once said to me, well, I know God loves us and I know he's doing his best, but sometimes he can't help these things from happening. Now that is a statement, a conclusion that she has drawn about God based on her experience, unfortunately not entirely correct, as I think we'll see in this passage today. What kind of God is the Lord? Now we're not going to go through these uh, chapters verse by verse. Um, As you will have noted when we read it, there's an introduction in verses 1 to 5. And then in the first two chapters there are four scenes, two in heaven, two on earth. In heaven, then on earth, then in heaven, then on earth in the first two chapters. And we'll be focusing on God and the heaven scenes today and Job and the earth scenes next week. So what can we see here about God? The first thing is we can see how God rules the world. In verses 6 to 12 of chapter 1 we become kind of flies on the wall of the heavenly courtroom. Um, If you've ever watched TVs or TV shows or movies set in the White House, you'll know that the President's office is the Oval Office and you've probably seen plenty of um, you know, mock-ups of the Oval Office in movies. Well, here we are taken into God's Oval Office as flies on the wall. And what do we see in there? Do we find God sitting there unmoving in splendid, serene isolation? No. Uh, do we find God alone in there frantically busy behind a huge bank of computer screens which he's using to try and keep everything under control like, like Oz? No, we don't find that. In fact, what we find is God holding a committee meeting. It's like the President's morning briefing in the Oval Office. Verse 6, uh, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, obviously this is a metaphor. Um, God probably doesn't hold meetings in which he finds things out that he didn't know before and in which they brainstorm ideas on a big whiteboard about how to govern the universe. But the point is that while there is only one God who rules everything supremely, he rules through his agents whom he sends out to do his will. God is the supreme power in this universe over all the powers, but there are other powers in this universe, spiritual and earthly, which God uses to achieve his will. And what might surprise some people here is that some of those powers he uses are evil. In verse 6 we see Satan also came with the sons of God to present themselves before the Lord. Now, what was Satan doing there? Um, Did he breach security and sort of gate crash the meeting? No. Uh, He's an adversary, that's what the word Satan means, adversary. He was God's enemy, he's nasty and evil. 
but he was part of the meeting because he had a function to perform under God. And so the Lord asks Satan for a report on what he's been up to. Verse 7, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Now, that interchange is more than just what have you been up to, Satan? Oh, just wandering around. Uh, Satan has been ranging the earth for a reason. What is that reason? He's been looking for godly people. Why is that? Well, because Satan is the challenger of God's glory and it's through God's worshippers that God is glorified. Now, why would God let a challenger, an adversary, into his meeting? Because God uses Satan's challenges to prove and enhance his own glory. And so, uh, the Lord's fateful words to Satan in verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Uh, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan, it would seem, has been looking for people like this to use in challenging God's honour and glory. And that's what Satan does next. He sets up a challenge. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, Satan is saying, Job is outwardly pious, yes, I'll admit that, but he only fears you, God, because he's getting something out of it. Um, He worships you, you bless him. That's a formula that he's worked out and it's working for him, but if you mess with that formula, he'll turn his back on you straight away. Well, the Lord allows the challenge. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now some people give Satan way too much credit as if Satan were an alternate God, as if there's a prize fight going on between God and Satan and uh, either of them could win and if some suffering gets through into our life, well God's dropped his guard and Satan's landed a blow, whereas if things are going well in our lives, well God seems to be winning at that point. But that is not how it is according to the book of Job. It's not a prize fight between God and Satan. God is in charge of everything, you'll see here. Nothing happens without his decree. Yes, there is an evil power at work, but even that power is under the power of God and he uses Satan's evil for his own purposes. Notice that when Satan acts here, another way of it being described is God has stretched out his hand on the life of Job. So Satan is not a rival God, he is a created being like the angels, he's turned against God but God still tolerates him and uses him to gain glory for himself. In other words, God has Satan on a leash, Satan can only do the will of God. Nothing happens, including bad stuff, outside the will of God. Now, does God, God doesn't stand behind evil in the same way that he stands behind the good. Because God is good, he is not evil. And we should never accuse God of being evil. But God is sovereign over everything that happens. That's what we're seeing here. Now, there's a lot here that is mysterious and troubling and perhaps deeply dissatisfying for us. And this, of course, is what Job is going to wrestle with for the next 39 chapters.
But this is the glimpse that we're given of the inner workings of God's oval office. This is how God rules the world. He is the sovereign. He is totally in control, but he uses agents, good and evil. Now, this may make it sound like God is really quite detached from us. He's up there in his office with his committee issuing his decrees. But we also get a sense here of how God relates to people. And that's the second heading um, uh, here, how God relates to people. God is not detached from us. He knows us and he is intricately involved in our lives. Um, Now, as you know, we're all hearing a lot at the moment about how the various political parties are setting policies to affect various groups of people. You know, this one hates old people and this one likes these people and, you know, this policy affects this group and, you know, they're courting that vote and whatever else. None of them, though, know who Steve Young is. None of them really know how their policies are going to affect me personally. Uh, Scott Morrison doesn't think when he's setting his policy, now how is this this going to affect Steve and Steve's family? But what we see here is that God governs the world with individuals in mind. Have you considered my servant Job, says God. God, The Lord knows Job by name, which is an incredible thing. He considers Job his servant, which implies a relationship. God and Job were friends, like Moses, the servant of the Lord, spoke to the, the Lord as with a friend. Now, if we reflect on this for a little while, we will see how incredible it is that the God of the whole universe relates to human beings like this. He considers his people his friends. They walk with him. Now, of course, it's not an equal relationship. Don't get me wrong when I use the word friend. But he knows people and he allows them to know him personally. If you're somebody who knows God personally, it's worth reflecting on what that says about God It says some amazing things about who he is. And it seems here that God takes pleasure and pride in Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Our puny efforts to worship God, it would seem, please him. Now how could a God who made the whole universe take pleasure from one puny person on one small planet in a vast creation? Well, because he made us human beings uniquely for relationship with him. That's the kind of God he is, big enough to know and care for each one of us. And so we see here when it comes to stretching out his hand over Job's life, God is very precise in what he allows to be touched. Uh, The first time, God allowed Satan to take everything Job had, but Satan couldn't touch Job's person. The second time, which we didn't read about in chapter 2, Satan comes back on another day and says, well, for the test to be complete, you have to let me touch his body as well. And God says, okay, I'll remove my protection from his person, but you can't take his life. I want us to note for a start there that the details of Job's life are known and accounted for by God. It's not like God doesn't know or care what's going on uh, in Job's life or the specifics of his life. God is intricately involved in the details of his life. That's the level of decree that God is issuing. So on the one hand, we have a God who sovereignly rules over the entire universe, issuing his decrees to the angels and to the powers from his throne in heaven. But on the other hand, the Lord reveals an intimate relationship with a man named Job and an intricate attention to the details of his life. 
You might take that for granted, but I think it's pretty amazing if you reflect on it. How does the God of the universe relate to people? Individually and affectionately and intricately. He gets personally involved with us. And so we need to note that what happens to Job is not because Job was God's enemy and nor was it because God was ignorant of the circumstances of Job's life. What happened to Job happened to him because God knew him already. Um, It was because Job was God's friend that these things happened to Job. And so we might ask why God would allow suffering to be inflicted on a friend, which is what in fact has happened. Uh, This is the issue now of God's priorities. So third heading, what God's priority is. Why allow suffering into Job's life? Why allow Satan to go back for a second go so that Job's suffering would be absolute in chapter 2? Well, God wants our happiness and well-being. Don't get me wrong, he cares about our happiness or our sadness. He wants to bless us, but the point is there is a higher priority than our comfort. Satan challenged God's glory and Job was to be used here to bring God honour and glory. If Job continued to side with God for God's sake and not turn away despite gaining nothing for himself, God would be glorified through that. God would be giving the, getting the honour that he deserves. And so God allowed Job to be tested in this affliction. Some might read this and think that this is, is not a good look for God, um, prioritising his own glory over Job's welfare. Is that selfish? Is it, it sounds egotistical. Uh, is it capricious? Um, Someone accused me of being capricious once. I didn't know what it meant. I had to go home and look it up and then I thought, oh, that's what it means. Goodness. It means being uncaringly fickle with other people, playing with people according to your whims. That's caprice. But God is not like that in prioritising his own glory. This is not capricious. It's not egotistical or selfish as we might understand it and apply it to ourselves. We are being challenged here to see that God's glory is the universe's greatest good. And that's why God prioritises it. Um, After all, if I think that my comfort is more important than God's glory, then my attitude basically is that the universe should be revolving around me. But what kind of universe would it be if it were allowed to revolve around me, or you for that matter? We are not big enough to have the universe revolve around us. Think of the gravity that is holding all of you to your seats and me to the ground at the moment. It's kind of pulling us downwards towards the earth. You need a mass that is big enough to pull everything else towards the centre. Otherwise, we and everything else would be floating off into space and disintegrating. You need an attractive force like that. And just so, if God is not at the centre of reality, then everything falls apart. He has to be the one for whom all things exist. God's glory is the universe's greatest good, otherwise everything flies apart. That's why the Lord prioritises his own glory over his friend's comfort. Satan wants to disprove the glory of God. God wants to enhance his glory because the honour of God is ultimately the greatest good for the world, Job, everybody. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and for him are all things... To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's how it ought to be. 
So did God care about Job's pain? Yes, he did. But his own glory had to take priority over the comfort even of a friend. Now we're going to look at Job's response next week and beyond that we will see how hard it became for Job to hold on to this. But for now, what kind of God is the Lord? The answer from Job is he is a sovereign God who works his will through his agents, be they good or evil. He is a God who relates personally to us and gets involved in our lives intricately. He is a God who works to glorify himself because glory should be the unifying purpose, his glory should be the unifying purpose of everything in this universe and his highest priority. The challenge for us here, I think, is to have a vision for a world in which God is fully glorified as he should be, on earth as it is in heaven. If you're someone who knows God as your friend and you see something of the glory of God because you know the Lord Jesus, at least part of you wants to see that glory realised in the world. If you're a Christian, you want to see God glorified, at least to some extent. And sometimes you might wonder how that project is going, um, the project of God's glory. In my prayers, I often pray the Lord's Prayer and sort of springboard off each line, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Etc. Your kingdom come, etc. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first half of the Lord's Prayer, that a world centred on God. And as I'm praying along with that, sometimes I'm just thinking, gee, we've got a long way before this is realised. You know, the hallowing of God's name in this world. How many people really, I don't, I don't even do it properly. Um, and I'm supposed to be one of his people. But it's good to remember that we have now seen the triumph of the glory of God. Is the same pattern recurring in heaven as we see here in Job. Satan comes to God, God mentions someone to test, away Satan goes to test this person. The same challenges to God's glory. Is it just going round and around and around over and over again? How is this going to be resolved? Well, the New Testament tells us that it has now been resolved on the cross. The supreme test, the supreme affliction, the supreme faithfulness, the supreme glorification of God by Jesus Christ on behalf of all of us on the cross. And we're told that at that point Satan was decisively defeated. Colossians 2, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work and that's what he's done. In John 13, when his fate on the cross was sealed, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. See, Jesus has glorified God through his death on the cross, definitively. And so, uh, there's an interesting passage in Revelation 12 as it relates to Job, when the decisive battle of the cross is depicted between a huge battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, It says that Satan was defeated and thrown down and there was no longer any place for him and his followers in heaven. Now I take that to mean that nowadays Satan is no longer able to attend the committee meetings around God to challenge God's glory by accusing us because one has now been found who has passed that test, the ultimate test, established the glory of God once for all on the cross. In fact, Now, when we picture what's going on in heaven, we might picture it slightly differently. Satan has now been banished, thrown down, 
But now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and ruling for him. And so in our pain and in our pleasures, not only do we have the comfort that we can bring glory to God in how we respond, but we also have the confidence that it's all heading towards a resolution since God's glory, victory, has already been established. Being a fly on the wall of heaven in Job should reassure us that God is in control, his rule is absolute, that God knows and cares about each one of us, that God is focused on what is right, which is his glory, and that God will win in the end. A vision of God like this, I think, should lift our eyes above our own small concerns because there is a God in heaven who needs to be glorified. We go about our lives, we've got various desires and priorities and goals in our lives, but how can I bring glory to God must be the primary goal if you are one of God's people. Well, we'll see more about the human response uh, in next week's uh, sermon on the same passage, Uh, but for now let's reflect on God and pray to him. Loving Father, we thank you for this picture of you seated on your throne in heaven. Uh, We thank you for this reminder that your glory is the greatest good of the whole world, including us. We thank you, Lord, for reassuring us here that you are totally in control of everything that goes on, even the bad things. Uh, We pray and we thank you also for reminding us that you are intricately involved in our lives, that you do care for us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would build us up as we see you more clearly in studying the book of Job. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.